You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. From Shakespeare to Schwartz, from Fosse to Alvin Ailey, from Sondheim to Borellis, from McNally to Faye, it happened to the greats, it still happens every day. When lightning strikes, it's the moment you know. When lightning strikes, where you're meant to go, you can stand and shout your Hi, this is Gerald Brunner, and you're listening to When Lightning Strikes, where we talk about the tingly mic drop moments that led you to becoming an artist. (laughs) Joel Thurm is known as one of Hollywood's most accomplished casting directors, getting his start in theater with the legendary producer David Merrick. He went on to play a key role, casting some of the most important shows and films. Just a few of them include Cheers, Hill Street Blues, Taxi, Grease, Airplane, and the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Joel has worked with countless celebrities, including Judy Garland, Pearl Bailey, Ethel Merman, Ted Danson, and John Travolta. His book, Sex, Drugs, and Pilot Season, Confessions of a Casting Director, was just released. Welcome, Joel. (laughs) Well, thank you. Thank you for having me here. It is a joy to have you. I think about, I mean, you had me at David Merrick, and then to <laughs> Your career just goes on and on and on, and then is told in your beautiful new book. Congratulations on that! I'd love to start with how you your lightning strikes moment when you knew you had to enter this crazy field. I think about that when I knew that you know this is what I wanted to do, but the word this I'm using very amorphously. I didn't know exactly what or how or what area. And it was when I was going to college, uh, my first year of college, um, as a classic underachiever, I was sent to uh, school, one of the city schools with so-called program for classic underachievers, which all it meant that you'd only had to take uh, 12 credits instead of 16. They wouldn't let you tell the full, um, the full, uh, the full schedule. But I joined the theater group at Hunter College Uptown. This is in the Bronx. 
uh, an hour and 45 minute commute from my house in Brooklyn, my family's house in Brooklyn, because I couldn't get into Brooklyn College, which is 20 minutes away. <laughs> so, um, but uh, I was told that if you want to make friends, the easiest way to make friends is join the theater group. And so I did. And I found out a couple of things. I found out I was a terrible actor because all I cared about on stage is what I looked like and how I came across. I had, you know, nothing about technique or, act, you know, none of that stuff. I just was worried about how I looked. But I think it all comes down to one night. And I don't know what play we were doing, but we were because <clears throat> in addition to acting in the plays, we build the sets, we did the lights, we did everything. And it had gotten so late that I just crashed on a pile of red velvet curtains backstage. Very comfortable bed, by the way. And I realized I really like what I'm doing. I like, I like building sets. I like playing with the lights. I like not so much acting on stage, but I like this area. And this is the area that I'm going to work in. What part of it, I don't know. But I, I didn't give up my ambition to be a star but I figured I could be a star backstage <laughs> on the other side. <laughs> and what were some of those early productions you were in? You mean in college? Yeah. yeah go. Well, I, I got uh, Death for Salesman. Every school does who, that. Um, who did you play? Wait a minute. There, there's this one. Who did you huh? play? Oh, no. Death. Oh, who? I don't even think. I think Yes, I know what I did. I was a spotlight. Okay. <laughs> Death of Salesman. I had a zero in on the poor wife You're, at the end okay, of the show. Okay. Uh, D- Dark of the Moon was my final where I had to sing Down in the Valley while strumming a guitar. Okay. Um, but my, 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 I think the moment on stage that changed everything, which also is, is a good answer to your previous question, we were doing a Juno and the Paycock, uh, Juno and the Paycock a play, sure. takes place during the Irish Troubles, yes. and I was, uh, my, my character was, came on in the second act, he was IRA man number two. I wasn't even number one, I was number two. So all I had to do basically was like we were like uh, p- policemen or vigilantes come on stage, grab the hero, drag him off stage and say a line or two. This is 1930s. And like I said, didn't come on till the end of the second act. So I had the entire first half hour before the show begins to prepare and the entire first act and the entire second act to fiddle with makeup, with costume, you know. And so all the things I learned about stage makeup where you put a dot here and a dot there and you color this and you color that. And the costume was a 1930s uh, trench coat with the collar, excuse me, with the collar up. And, you know, the fedora that goes down over one eye. Yes. <laughs> and I had all this time. And for some reason, I just I kept squeezing the belt so hire a man one and two go out on the stage and my big line was you're coming with us <laughs> so grab the guy the two of us you're coming with us and drag him off stage okay at the end of it the director dr marvin seiger gets the whole cast together and give notes and when he got to the end of the second act my note was and joel you're supposed to be an IRA man, not Lauren Bacall. Now, think of the trench coat, the hat, and uh. all of that. His, he wasn't far off, but I was effing devastated oh. for a moment. I was so embarrassed. Um, 
and uh and but but so that was the moment i knew that i was not going to be an actor <laughs> but i still loved everything about the theater i see and i love your trajectory so that, i mean because it was kind <laughs> of how you fell into all these places at the right time and you kept saying yes and do you want to fast forward to Italy, how you end up in Italy, which led you back to New York, which led you ultimately to David Merrick. But you tell me where in that timeline. Well, I mean, college went along until I accidentally flunked out of college. When I say accidentally, I was spending so much time with the theater group, I asked to be excused from a chemistry class. Now, mind you, in high school, I got A pluses in chemistry and all the sciences. But I, but I got to college, I just said I really didn't care uh, that much. Um, and so I withdrew from a class, and I thought I was going to get a withdrawal without any prejudice. Instead, I got a withdrawal failure. Nobody withdraws if they know they're going to get a failure because you take the uh, final, and if you get a D, you pass. And which went along perfectly with my average, which hovered around C. Anyway, so I failed. I flunked out. And I didn't have, I didn't know what to do. School had always been my anchor up to this point. And this is right after the first semester of my sophomore year. And I was very, very interested in mythology. I read every mythology book I could find. And so I said, well, fine, look, I'm going to go to Europe. I'll either go to Italy or Greece. And I, because of the mythology thing, and I figured I could learn Italian easier than learning to speak Greek because I was already a pretty good French student. And so that's what I did. I went to, uh, I went to Italy, uh, called myself an actor looking for work. <laughs> All my high school, my, excuse me, my college theater uh, acting became, um, what do you call it, credits that I had. And um, just through circumstance, you know, I, I, I met this guy named Guidorino Guidi, who was um, Fellini's assistant. And he was also a casting director in his own right. And um, basically, he gave me three jobs. You know, they were glorified extra jobs, uh, but they were work. But I, I loved Italy, and I had many adventures in Italy. You know, um, I had a, uh, what do you call it? Uh, did you know the movie Call Me By Your Name, which I never understood the title? Well, I, I, was, I was the 19-year-old kid in a very similar situation and started a relationship with an architectural student an expat. And um, when he left Rome to go to the Università per Stranieri, I trailed him into his classes. And then um, you know, time was running out, but, but, and we remained great, great friends. So this, uh, I'm getting way off topic and should come back. But, but eventually I ran out of money um, and I made a deal with my parents that uh, they'll send me a plane ticket back if I go back to school and get my teacher's license, <laughs> because the teacher's never out of work if you're, you know, have depression mentality. So I did come back, uh, got my, uh, moved into Manhattan after a while because I was able to uh, get some, cobble together a few jobs and, you know, uh, share an apartment with someone. So I didn't even have to stay at my parents for, for most of that time. And anyway, that summer, and I'm probably being long-winded here, um, let me go back a bit. The first summer of, before I flunked out, 
all the kids in the theater group were looking at backstage and variety and other newspapers to try to find acting jobs. I didn't care about an acting job. I just wanted a job. And I got the job as box office treasurer of the Tappan Zee Playhouse in Nyack, New York. And it was a p- part of these uh, star package houses that uh, ran up and down the East Coast. Do you know what a star package house is or explain it? Well, explain I explain it? A, a, a group of theaters get together and produce one play, usually, or, or a musical, something that recently closed on Broadway. So like, so let's say eight theaters chip in to do the production, and the show travels from theater to theater to theater. Each theater builds its own sets and lighting. The only thing that travels are costumes and certain props that you could never find, and the actors. So it's in, every place is new. And uh, I, was, I was the box office treasurer. And one of the things that helped me for later life was all the phone calls for the entire place came through the box office. So I would talk to agents or agents' assistants, not wanting to talk to me, but wanting to talk to my boss upstairs. <laughs> so during the can you hold for Mr. So-and-so, me and the other assistant would be chatting. Later on, many of these assistants became big agents themselves in New York. So when I moved up the ladder a little bit, I knew who all these people were. So, uh, you know, so now I find myself in summer stock. And also when I came back, uh, I also found, oh, so I come back from, from Rome. And this time I finagle it so that I don't go to Hunter College uptown in the Bronx, but I go to Hunter College on Park Avenue and 68th Street, which at that time was an all-girls school. <laughs> and so I like to say there were 8,000 girls, 46 boys, and myself. And, and what was great about that place is they, they paid me to build sets. So I had like a, a scholarship. Girls did not build sets in the mid-60s. They didn't do things like that. So, um, so that's what I did. And I think Hunter College did it something else by – it was a mistake. Instead of having the women portray men's roles in classic plays, they hired professional actors, uh, off-Broadway actors or off-off-Broadway actors. And that's how I met Neil Flanagan, Lanford Wilson, Lance Wilson, and Michael Powell. And I started hanging out at the Cafe Chino, which is the beginning of the off-off-Broadway movement. And, you know, it's like you get, you, you get work by, by meeting people. And um, so through people at the Chino, I met Dick Barr, who produced all of Edward Alsby's plays, and through him, his general manager, but his general manager, Michael Kasdan, said, uh, Music Fairs is looking for someone to be assistant manager of Westbury Music Fair. Are you interested? I said, yeah, why not? What about, you know, I have nothing. Why, why not? So I, said, I did it. But at Westbury Music Fair, I got to work with, with like you mentioned, Chuby Garland, Nina Simone, Bill Cosby. And we also did some plays there in addition to concerty things. So how did you get to David? Because I love the story of how you got to David Mer- to working for the general manager for David Merrick, and that you saw well, same, Brenda Vaccaro and and would talk to well, your well, no, the, no, the, the 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 same way that I got the job at music fairs was from this man Michael Kasdan, who was Richard Barr's general manager, and he called up and said, 
Jack Schlissel, who said there's an opening in the Merrick office for the assistant to the, jet, to the general manager, a business position, not a creative position. I went up and I interviewed and I got it. I mean, it was, uh, it was, it was great, but it was a business job. And the guy I worked for was a real hard ass. And he expected me to be a real hard ass as well. Which I'm not. Right. I mean, he would threaten and follow through on a threat. Yeah. You know, I, I, it's just not me to right. do that. But um, what happened was, uh, be, because the office was only two short subway stops from my house, I always got there early. And there were no coffee machines at that time in offices. So I would bring up coffee and bagels. And Jack, his name was Jack Schlissel, Jack and I would talk. And I'd tell him what I'd seen the night before be it a movie, a play, or like if one of our understudies was going on, and this particular understudy, she was understudying Brenda Vaccaro, who was in Cactus Flower. So Brenda's understudy went on. And I watched, and it was she was very good. So the next day I came in to Jack. I said, you know, so-and-so went on for Brenda, and Brenda's going to leave in another couple of months. I said, this woman was very, very good. She got all the laughs, um, and I'm sure she'll be a lot cheaper than Brenda. And I think he heard the word cheaper more than anything else. So uh, indeed, later on, the woman did get the understudy was moved up. But, you know, out of the blue, a few weeks later, Jack calls me into his office with a get in here. Got in. And he said, look, I can't stand working with you anymore. So you got a choice. You can go work with Biff Liff in our production department. And that's the area I really wanted to work in. You can reopen our casting department, become our casting director with a $50 a week raise, or you're, you're fired. You're out the door. And I said, Jack, I don't know anything about casting. <laughs> and he said, yes, you do. You just don't know you do. And that's how I became the casting director for the most important producer in New York at that time. Without any, um, And he was right. I did know all those years of watching television as a kid going to... Uh, Saturday morning kitty shows at the Biltmore Theater, you know, in East New York, and then being allowed to stay for the adult shows, you know, and being an unathletic kid in Brooklyn, uh, I, w I wasn't a sissy, but I just, if, it, if, if something involves a hand, a ball, and an eye, I can't deal yeah. with it. I just have no coordination but, that way. Yeah. Um, so I would, I would go to the library, I'd listen to um, musical comedy records, so I had immersed myself. I actually, I sent myself to school all those years up until this point. So I did have a, 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 a what do you call it, uh, filing cabinets up here filled with actors. And for people who might not know who David Merrick is, can you say, I mean, he was one of the most important producers well, 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 of his day. Well, Just name it. Well, no, I wouldn't say one of them. I, I, would, I, would I would go a step further. In the, uh, from the mid-60s till well, mid-70s or early 60s into the early 70s, he was the most prolific and important pro Broadway producer. When I started work, there were a total of 12 shows. That's counting shows that were doing national tours. But 12 Broadway shows, some on Broadway and some on tour. And you may have heard of some, you know, Gypsy, uh, Dolly, Dolly. Uh, Rose, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. I mean, it was a combination yeah. of really good plays and, and, and music. So you, here you were. So I became yeah, the so. pinnacle. And you were, in, you know. So I, yeah. 
Yeah. So I, I become company. I, I, so I'm in a business position. I'm not creative yet. Yeah. <laughs> and when I'm, I was company manager of Hello Dolly, which was then starring Pearl Bailey uh, in the role. She was the fifth Dolly. And part of my job was really to keep Pearl happy. And uh, because she was in the city alone, her family was back in California. And we just hit it off. Uh, she adopted me as her son. Two to three nights a week, we would go to Sardi's. She'd take me to dinner or a late night supper. And, uh, I, and I just, I liked her. There was something, you know, a, a bond was, was, you know, come on, watch Star of a Bride. Here's a story, a Pearl story. Um, I'm sick. I had amoebic dysentery, actually. And I didn't go, I wasn't at work. And there's a knock at my door in my village apartment, and it's Pearl, completely dressed up, holding several packages along with her assistant, Dodie. And they brought all the materials needed to make chicken soup and all the cleaning materials needing to clean my apartment. Uh. And I went and I went back on the chair that I was sitting and fell asleep. And a few hours later, there was warm chicken soup on the stove and my apartment was clean. <laughs> I mean, this is not diva yeah. behavior. Pearl Bailey. <laughs> so uh, and then such a talent. And then, you know, and yeah. And so uh, and then later on. So this is in the beginning. And then I became casting director, so I no longer had to be at the show every night like I used to, but instead I started doing all the replacement casting for all the existing merit shows and a few new ones. Nice. So, uh, so that was that. And then Pearl asked me uh, if I wanted to come to California to work on her TV show, and I said, great, what job would I be? I said, I'd like to learn television production. And um, so I just knew, well, okay, it's easy to sublet my apartment. I knew where I could stay in California. My best friend moved there two years before, and I knew he had a very large house. I could have the whole downstairs. So all I'd have to do is rent a car and bring some clothes. So I said, sure, I'll do it. And that's then begin phase yes. two, California. So, I mean, I don't. where do we begin? Can you talk about some of the early shows that you were casting for TV? Well, it it, uh, it it worked. It's at first when I got to California, I was doing Pearl yes. Show, which is an old fashioned variety uh -huh. show, <clears throat> very old fashioned variety show that was dead on arrival because it was so old fashioned. And um, Laughing had just aired, uh, or had started to air a year before, and the whole concept of how to do a variety show changed. So um, we were over in 15 episodes, but don't ask how or why, but I made a silly but wonderful and smart move was while I was working for Pearl, I bought a house um, because I was, it's, it's, uh, I was told, well, people buy and sell houses in California. I mean, it's, you don't have to be a family. You don't, you know, it's like you want to go back to New York, you'll sell the house. You know, it's that easy. Except I had started fixing up the house and had torn it apart. <laughs> so I couldn't sell a house as a kit. Here's Here are the pieces. Here's how you put it back together. So I was stuck. And I went around. I said, okay, well, here, I'm David Merrick's casting director. I'll get a casting job. No one would hire me. No one. I couldn't get arrested um, until... Um, I met a woman by the name of Ethel Wynant, who was head of casting for CBS, 
a very, very, very smart woman. And she hired me. I mean, I, I met her through other friends, and she was very impressed that I was Merrick's casting director. She knew what that meant. And um, so I started working for her. I joined her. And, and this is a time when <clears throat> it doesn't work this way now, but CBS had a casting department consisting of five people. We actually cast shows for other companies that were not CBS companies, and they would pay CBS for our services. The best example was the Mary Tyler Moore Company, MTM Company. So Ethel herself single-handedly cast Mary Tyler Moore. Brilliant woman. And at a time when none of the men at, uh, at, at CBS at that time wanted to do that show and, in fact, hated it. And Ethel... There's someone we should write a book about what she did. Single-handedly, she cast that show. And then I got to cast Bob Newhart. So I started with Bob Newhart. But my deal was, because I was getting paid so little money, that I was allowed to do outside work as long as it didn't interfere with CBS. Because I was the low man on the totem pole. And a, a friend from New York who had also moved out was a general manager. And one day he hands me a record. We're going to do a production of Tommy. You want to cast it? I said, well, yeah. And he hands me the record. And I said, well, it's a record. How do you cast him a record? And he said, well, you figure it out. <laughs> so we did a local production of Tommy that managed to run for like six months, which is very unusual. And uh, the star of it was Teddy Neely who later went on to do, um, what do you call it, uh, Jesus Christ Superstar, the movie. And this is now, we're now at around 1974, and I'm, I've given the job, or another, Brian is managing this company, says, uh, there's a show called The Rocky Horror Show, and I'd heard about The Rocky Horror Show from friends who had seen it in England, and a man named Lou Adler bought all the rights, and did I want to cast the Rocky Horror Show, the first U.S. production at the Roxy Theater in L.A.? And I did. <laughs> and out of that came Meatloaf, um, who was in New York. We found him in New York. And uh, Tim Curry was the only one allowed to come over because he's irreplaceable in that role. But the rest were all, uh, what do you call it, um, you know, American actors. And then immediately after the after the uh, what do you call it, uh, the, the, the play, Lou Adler was going to do a film. And again, I was asked to cast it. Uh, just the Americans. So the Americans now would have included Meatloaf, who had already done this production. But uh, when it came to Brad and Janet, I had to cast them. Was Meatloaf a star when you cast him? No, Meatloaf is a complete unknown singer who walked into an audition in New York. And, you know, regular, no, nothing spectacular. He had an agent, and the agent sent him in. And, uh -huh. whoa, the first the physicality and then the voice. Uh -huh. So that's how he was cast. Mm -hmm. And then he was so good that he was going to be – and there was the, the movie was going to be all Brits, original Brits who did the original show, except for uh, Meatloaf and then Brad and Janet. I wanted to talk about Greece. You know, Please. yes, because there's a great, and I love that Olivia Newton-John insisted, insisted, a star insisted on a screen test. Well, you got to remember, she was a pop star. Yes. She wasn't an acting star. 
And she was terribly worried because she had done one movie where she thought she was terrible and was embarrassed. And she didn't need to be embarrassed again because her stardom was even more at this point than it was when she did that movie. So she also was a few years older than Travolta. And there were several things. So, I mean, it's the only time in my whole career that I've ever heard of an actor asking for a screen test. And I thought that was a very wise move. But that screen test led to something else. Um, so we're doing a full-scale screen test. I mean, not a little cheapy in front of a little, you know, handheld video camera. This is a full studio production on film. And we're doing the scene at the drive-in with the car. And... We're using the movie script, and the first take, no laughter. Second take, no laughter. And when the crew isn't laughing at something that you know is funny or supposed to be funny, you've got a real problem. And I pulled out a copy of the musical play script that I always carried with me. And I looked at the same scene, and, oh, here's why it's not working. The dialogue is totally different. So I gave the musical play dialogue to John and Olivia. They studied it. And the next take, the crew is laughing. <laughs> and the second take, they're laughing. <laughs> and what had happened was um, uh, Alan Carr, who put the project together, who produced the piece, he and his co-writer completely rewrote all the dialogue throughout the piece, wherever there was a parallel scene. Unfortunately, the dialogue from the play script was much better than the, than the dialogue from the movie script. So uh, anyway, uh, but, but what happened is after the screen test, both John and Olivia got their cassettes sent to them. They loved it. Olivia said, I'm in. A deal is made. And the Paramount executives are going to see the screen test like the next day at, at a screening room. And but but they're very happy because they know Olivia's set and they know that they have a movie. And Alan Carr was there. And afterwards, he just threw me so much shade. I mean, he just glared at me and he said, did I see the fine hand of Joel Thurm in that test? And he said, yeah, wasn't it great? Like I I did something like I saved your friggin movie. <laughs> you know, if Olivia didn't get a laugh in that scene, she wasn't going to do it. And. He just glared at me because I didn't know that I didn't really think yeah. that I was changing his dialogue yes. oh, boy. that he wrote. <laughs> but also every single idea that he had for casting was one was worse than the next. I mean, he paid porn star Harry Reams $5,000 to do the Sid Caesar part in the movie. He really, that's how insane uh, he was about. So how'd you get Sid Caesar? And oh, well, it's very no. What happened was, was the way casting works in this in this case is I read the script and I make a list of all you know. Here's the role. Here's the people I think should play it. So under the principle, I wrote one name, Eve Arden, and he had already promised that role to one of his friends by the name of Fanny Flagg, per perfectly lovely woman. Yeah. But um, I, I but Paramount agreed with all of my choices, not uh. his, which made him, you know, again, a little, I, I moved higher on a shit list because of that. Yeah. But, but, but no, I mean, how could you turn down Eve Arden, who is known for like how many, 30 years as a teacher on her, on her television yeah. show and radio? 
And, and um, so, and I said, oh, and he said, what do I do about Fanny Flagg? I said, well, she becomes a school nurse. Give her two lines as a school nurse. But I did something else, which a casting director doesn't do. I went talking about Eve Arden. I said, but you know, but Eve needs some, somebody to play off. So we need give give her an assistant principal, someone like Dodie Goodman. <sighs> Dodie Goodman had no role. She had no lines. But that's how Dodie Goodman got there. And she was perfect yeah. at that. You know, and then, then, you know, and then the other thing that happened was then, you know, Stocker Channing getting that role that everybody thought was a horrible idea turned out to be a sensational idea. You know, it's a case where a person on the surface is totally wrong in every way for that part. Stockard is a well-born, wealthy uh, woman from the Upper East Side of New York who I think never even walked near a school like Rydell. But her performance and her audition was kind of wonderful. And when you see her singing, there are worse things I can do. She's acting the hell out of that song, you know. And we also did something which is we didn't know we were doing at the time. But every single person in the the movie was older than they should have been. Everybody, almost everybody hovered around 30. They were clearly were not teenagers. (laughs) And at at first there was criticism about that. But I think ultimately that works for the movie better than real kids because it really becomes a fairy tale. Grease is not a documentary. Mm -hmm. And if you try to make it too real, it doesn't work. So having these older experienced actors... I think really made made the difference. So let's go to Taxi, because what a oh, casting yes. feat that is as well. Yeah. Do you want to talk about your time with Taxi? Well, t- Taxi was interesting because it, 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 the casting process went over months and months, which I find is a detriment because you begin second-guessing yourself. Well, should we go with person A? Because there might be someone who's a little better that we don't know about. So that was an overall problem. But, uh, but I will I'll just give you two stories. One is the Danny DeVito story. I-, I met Danny DeVito when he did a Starsky and Hutch that I cast a couple of years before. So, but my instructions from my instructions from the producers were because, of course, you talk to everybody and you you learn you you learn what they're looking for, and that's how so your mind can give them what they want. And I was specifically told by more than one of the producers, don't spend too much time on on the role of Louis. They said all we need is a funny looking character. He's never going to have more than one or two lines an episode. So the first day of casting, I bring in two people. I bring in, you know, you always bring in two people, never just bring in one person. You always need to bring in two. And the first guy read and he read well. Then Danny walks in and literally Danny was down to his last dime. I don't think he could have had bus fare from the the studio if he needed it. Uh, He has a script in his hand and he throws it on the desk and says, who wrote this shit? And he walked in, and after the line, who wrote this shit, the guys behind the desk break up in laughter because that's what Louis would do. And anything that Danny said for the rest of the 10 minutes, they roared at, you know, and because he became Louis right in front of their eyes. So he was the first person cast. 
you know, so that was the easy one. Uh, uh, what do you call it? Mary Lou Henner, however, was, I mean, everybody fell into place differently. But Mary Lou Henner, her character was, had changed so many times. The original person for that part was going to be Nell Carter. And Nell Carter decided to take Ain't Misbehaving in New York instead and wasn't available for it. But we read a lot of people for Mary Lou's role. And finally, Mary Lou to me had, she was beautiful, she was sexy, but she could also give it back to the guys when they were giving it to her. And so she could be one of the guys, yet be also sexy, beautiful, and a good actress. So, um, but the guys couldn't make up their mind. And I finally said, look, I lied. I said, uh, Mary Lou has another offer that she's going to take unless we set her today. This is what I meant about stalling and stalling. And so, that, so that's how Mary Lou got into it. You know, um, foreign man, who else but Andy Kaufman, because he already had that character to play Latka. Uh, uh, you know, one by one, the, the, the last one was Judd Hirsch. Everyone turned that down, including Judd, had turned it down <laughs> twice. He had just he, he was he was he he had just gotten married, had a new kid, and he didn't think Taxi was going to last. So he didn't want to uproot his family for something that was going to last for six months and then disappear. So after turning it down like twice, they finally made him an offer that he could not refuse, which is approximately if. Add a zero to what everybody else was making. Ah. That's what Joe Judd was making. <laughs> but that's how it. That's you know. That's how that cast came together. How do you know when you've got the right person? I mean, I think about the multitudes of people you see and how you have to narrow it down to that one right person. How do you? I mean, is it that je ne sais quoi? How do you know when somebody's yes. brilliant? <laughs> you you, you just. Well, first of all, you, presumably you've been you've been seeing it read by different people, and and someone comes in and hits all the checks all the boxes, you know it works. I mean, I, I it's, you can't really explain it. You know, it's it's this question of how do you know someone is a star? Well, when the first time I met John Travolta in my office when he was seventeen, there was something incredibly special about it. I can't tell you what it was. It was every. It's the whole. It's what the whole. What were the picture. circumstances there? How did you end up meeting John Travolta? Oh, well, and my part of your job as a casting director, you just meet yes. actors. It's called a general sure. meeting, and his his manager sent him to me. He was seventeen. He just moved to New York, and he started working right away. Was this pre Welcome Back, no Cotter? No, oh, okay. no, no. Yes, of yeah. course, of course. No, of course, it was pre pre yeah. Cotter. Because he did, he did, he did, he went on the road with a company of Greece playing uh, a role of duty. And then he went into uh, a Broadway show called Over Here, which starred the two remaining Andrews sisters. So he was working on stage and then Cotter happened. Cotter, of course, changed everything. And Cotter led to The Boy in the Plastic Bubble, which I, which I produced. Um, I, I'll, I'll, if you're, I'll try to make it short, but. He had 17 days. He had, you know, he had about less, maybe a month between end of Cotter one season, beginning Cotter next season. And his picture was on every single magazine cover for teens in the world. Everybody wanted him for something. 
he wasn't able to do a feature film he wanted to do because they wouldn't give him a stop date. It was a movie called Days of Heaven. Richard Gere got that part, as did Richard Gere get Richard Gere's career, owes his career to Travolta because Gere's first three roles were things that Travolta turned down or pulled out of. So, um, but, uh, so anyway, I'm, I'm reading the script and, and I realize that this, this could be what Travolta is looking for. And I get it. I'm skipping, trying to make it fast. And I give the script to his manager. And his manager was pulling what's left of his hair out because Travolta was, he had to find a way to let people know that he wasn't Vinnie Barbarino, even though he's from Jersey and his name ends in a vowel. He was not that kind of a guy. And so Boy in the Plastic Bubble was it. And we filmed it and got rid of Travolta in 17 days. And it became the most viewed, watched, the most viewed movie of that season. And then... It was an easy transition for all of us to go to work on Greece. Same director, same star, and same whatever I was. <laughs> you know, so, uh, but there was the relationships were established, so that's what made it work. So, can you talk about your book, Sex, Drugs, and Pilot oh, Season? What inspired that? When I went to NBC, um, my first secretary was a woman named Arlen Phoenix who had a brood of kids that uh, she brought to California to get them into show business. And I got all these kids. They were River Phoenix, Joaquin Phoenix, Rain Phoenix, the whole family. So I got them started. I got them their first agent, and they started working right away, especially River. And then a little later on, Leaf, who became Joaquin. Um, but anyway, so we now jump, I don't know, 10 years, 15. So the Joaquin was about eight years old when his mother was working for me. And the kids came to the office a lot, you know, because Arlen stayed late and NBC would feed them and the kids would play in the executive rooms and gobble candy and watch television, things they couldn't do at home. So, but they loved coming to the, to the mother's office. Um, so, uh, the first agent, um, uh, we're having the, the, the kid's first agent dies. Her name was Iris Burton. It was a memorial service for her. And after the service, I went back to Joaquin's house with he and his mother. And, you know, a little wine or a lot of wine. And Arlen and I start exchanging war stories, funny stories that during our time together at NBC. And Joaquin is listening to all of this. And remember, he was eight years old when these things were going on. And... He's laughing and we're all laughing. And he said, man, you got to write this stuff down. And since he lives only five minutes from me, I literally went back to my house that night and started writing the first chapter. He was the one who suggested writing it. I mean, I never thought of it before, but then I realized I do have all of these stories. So I started that night. That's how, that's how the books. And it was great therapy for me. <laughs> going through it well, you know well, joel i could talk to you forever and ever and ever you were a plethora of stories and uh it's just a joy to have you on the show well thank you very much it happened to the greats it still happens every day when lightning strikes the moment you know the theme song was written by tom mcgovern this episode was edited by kyle moore this episode was produced by Anna Strand. When lightning strikes.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.